Today we are here with none other than Harry Mosier. He is <laughs> president of the Reshoring Initiative. And uh, so let's jump into that. What, what is the mission of the Reshoring Initiative? Um, that's pretty easy. Uh, it's to uh, balance the goods trade deficit, which last year were maybe 2021 was $1.1 trillion. There's a lot of dollars. And uh, balancing that will increase U.S. manufacturing by about 40, 40%. We'll bring back about five or six million manufacturing jobs. A big goal, okay. And so, <laughs> now why is it important to bring those jobs back? Um, you know, to achieve that balance in trade. Yeah, it's a broad range of benefits. First, obviously, the trade deficit comes down. You can't have ongoing trade deficits and budget deficits of the order of total three, four trillion dollars a year forever, or the or the economy will collapse. So, brings down the trade deficit by having those extra people working and their companies being busy, paying more taxes, taking less safety net money from the government, brings down the budget deficit. So trade deficit, budget deficit, both get better. I think I think very important is what I call national confidence. Back in, say, the 50s or 60s, you know, 1950s and 60s, after the war, the U.S. was, was the Goliath, you know, the dominant force in the world. And at one time, we had half of the total manufacturing output. And now China produces 50% or 100% more than we do. Uh, their economy, if you measured it on equal terms, is, is, is bigger, bigger than ours. And there's a feeling that the U.S. has passed its, its peak, that it's in, in, a, in a sense of decline. And, and I believe that a lot of that has to do with manufacturing falling off so much, being not being self-sufficient anymore, not being able to make the things we need for the country and for, de for defense even. And so uh, I, I believe just national confidence will come back as manufacturing comes back. I income equality, uh, if you look at the statistics on uh, income inequality, uh, some of it's due to having, uh, you know, a, a, a hundred or, or so billionaires, but a lot of it's due to losing those five or six million middle-class solid manufacturing jobs. The climate, when you produce things here instead of producing them there and shipping them here, you cut the climate impact by 25 to 50%. So just a whole, whole range of really good benefits for the country. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense uh, why it's important. So and why so why what happened? How how did we get to that large trade deficit? Yeah, this is the reason we have that big trade deficit. The, the US is not and has not been for 50 60 years price competitive. So when companies go out and decide where to source, the overwhelming majority of the decision is based on price. I can buy it there for less than here. And when I can buy it there for substantially less than here, the companies go over there and they do that. So the U.S. is maybe 15% higher than most of Europe and 40% higher than China. So when, when the companies, excuse me, the companies look at that and say, they got to do it. And our, and our problem isn't just a deficit with China. Everybody talks about China, China, China. But of our top 10 trading partners, we have trade deficits with nine out of 10. So the U.S. just is not price competitive. Nick, can you name a few of those other ones that we would have major trade? Just a handful. Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the U.K., Japan, yeah. uh, South Korea, 
uh, Canada, Mexico. <laughs> there we go. That, that nailed it. Uh, you, you name them, and, and we've got a trade deficit with them, and because our prices are just not competitive. Okay. And and so is the government the lack of industrial policy? That's where I mean, because those countries you're naming, they, naming they they have industrial policy. A lot of them. Yeah, I had a slide, a couple of slides I'd like. This is data from users of our total cost of ownership estimator, which is a free online software that companies can go to and evaluate the decision. Should I have that made in China or should I have it made here? Should I made it in, in India, Hungary, you know, wherever it is. And I took the first 190 cases of China versus the U.S. And this, the data from that is here. So the horizontal axis is... China price as a percentage of U.S. price. The vertical axis is how many cases. So you can see that the, the center of the distribution, the mode of it, is around 70%. So on average, the China price is about 70% of the U.S. price. And, and companies look at that and they say, I can't, I can't afford not to go there. If I don't go there, my competitors will go there. I'll be out of business. I got to do it. So, the, so that, that's the driving force behind the offshoring. And then you were asking the question of, okay, what are we going to do about it? And we say that the problem is that the U.S. has has not had an industrial policy. That the U.S. Um, it, you've done all, all almost everything wrong. The U.S. dollar is up three hundred percent in the last forty years. Mm-hmm. We have a poor basic education. So when the people get to become toolmakers or welders or what have you, they don't have the the math and the science skills that they should have. Uh, we we do a very poor job then of recruiting and training that skilled workforce compared to Germany, uh, UK, uh, Switzerland, most of the countries do a much better job of recruiting and training the skilled workforce. For, for most of the last 20 or 30 years, our corp- corporate tax rates were way too high. So the return on investment on investing here was lower than other places. We typically have too much regulations. We haven't had a value-added tax, which taxes the imports and subsidizes the exports. Yeah. We have very high health care costs. You know, we're like 17, 18% of our GDP. Other countries are more like 8, 9, 10. And almost uniquely here, the health care cost is paid by the employer, and therefore it's built into the burden, which is the costing system for what the cost you to make something. And so, for example, the average family health care cost in the United States is about equal to the average salary in China. And so, and that cost is built into our cost of making things along with our wages and everything else. So, so our health care system is, is, uh, has contributed to it. So a whole range of things that have done it, but basically all the other countries are always trying to get their currency down or, or lowering their taxes or encouraging their companies to produce more. And we, for decades, we were so fat and, and happy. We said, that's okay, go ahead. And didn't do it. So why why isn't, you'd think that that'd be something that the both sides could agree on is industrial policy. I feel like it's never a conversation that gets that high level. What, do you have any idea why that is? Well, from the from the viewpoint of Republicans, the uh, industrial policy is inconsistent with free markets because they, they believe that the free market 
know, the the invisible hand kind of thing will yeah. will uh, make everything optimum. And if, and if you government does anything to uh, control the hand, that the you will not reach that optimum condition. Okay. And the uh, Democrats would typically say, well, uh, you say you want to do something that helps companies. So, for, for example, if we get the dollar down by 30 percent, which is what we'd like to do, the cost of living will go up by 3 percent or 4 percent, something like that. And the average person, especially poor people, will be tougher for them to get along. So Democrats would say, no, that's not good. Republicans would say, in principle, we shouldn't do it. So it doesn't get done. Now, what has been happening the last uh, you know, year, two years, is President Biden has been very successful with the CHIPS Act and the uh, IRA. So he's, he's, he's committed hundreds of billions of dollars mm-hmm. for, um, to, to get the U.S. producing more chips and producing EV batteries, solar cells, things like that. And, 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 and I believe these things are all necessary right now because we have fallen so far behind. But in the long run, if, if, if we're not competitive making those things here, then the long run, those factories will go bankrupt because they won't be able to compete with the rest of the world. So, so it's essential that we, we, we say, get, uh, have the skilled workforce we need like Germany's, more engineers, fewer uh, sociologists, for example, and have uh, and get the dollar down by 25, 30%. Do those two things, millions of jobs will flood back to the U.S. So, but it's so it sounds in like at least parts of what an industrial policy would include can get through, um, like the the supporting of the chips manufacturing, which gets hundreds of billions. And then, is there any progress with trade training and schooling on a you know on that legislative level, or because I feel like that's the other big key. The, each of the last presidents has tried. Obama had some efforts with the apprenticeship. Trump definitely spent hundreds of millions of dollars on on apprenticeships. The uh, uh, Biden's group has spent a fair amount of money, especially especially uh, training for uh, producing chips. So wherever the chip foundries are going in, they've got money for the local community college to train the workers to do the work. So they're, they're doing something, but they're doing it. What, what I think is wrong, they um, and most people who criticize industrial policy would say, it's not right to pick winners and losers. And in effect, we've picked chips and EV batteries and so on as winners. And, and by implication, everything else is a loser. And we say, no, that's not, that's not the right policy. We should, pick, we should not pick industries as winners. We should pick industry. We should pick manufacturing and say, let's get the overall uh, cost of manufacturing down by having a better skilled workforce, by having the dollar down. And if we do that, all manufacturing will rise. The, the the tide will rise and lift all the boats instead of just a couple of them that have been picked as the winners. Okay. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that does make sense. So what other, you know, besides um, government level, what, what are companies doing to contribute to this? Well, I guess you have that. Yeah, companies have been short-sighted. It's been very popular the last you know, 20, 30 years for the MBAs to come in and say, cut back to your core competence. And the core competence turned out to be marketing, uh, R&D, and finance. And they said, oh, those factories, you, you've got hundreds of millions, billions of dollars tied up in those factories. Why don't you 
shut those down and get that work done much less expensively in China or India or somewhere, Mexico, somewhere else. And, and, and therefore they reduce the assets and they, if anything, increase the earnings. So the return on assets went up and that's what MBAs are to told to do. But there was eventually companies found that if you do engineering, but you don't do manufacturing and the manufacturing is done 8,000 miles away and you don't have the engineers, the design engineers and the manufacturing engineers talking to each other to optimize the product and optimize the process of making it, pretty mm -hmm. soon you're not as good as you used to be. So they've, they they didn't see the the, the unintended consequences of, of what they of what they preach. So as a result, US companies have underinvested. So if you compare US investments in robots and CNC machine tools, you know, in most most categories like that, um, we significantly underinvest in comparison to South Korea, in comparison to Germany, even China, where the wages are about a third of ours has more robots per thousand workers than we do. And you'd think we would have more because we've got the more expensive labor that we have to you know, minimize to be competitive. Yeah. So it's, uh, the government has, I'd say the overwhelming fault, but companies have also been short-sighted. Companies tend to optimize for the quarter. We got to make the earnings for the quarter does that mean we don't buy any new equipment? Does that mean we don't train, hire any more workers? We don't do any training? Well, okay, we don't do it. And, and then the long run, we're in trouble. Whereas the most other countries, the bigger countries, the, the companies invest and invest and they hire and they train and they can and they take a longer term perspective. I've seen that at least recently, we've started to invest a little more heavily in robotics. Um, I mean, that was oh, all around the world, everybody's investing more in robotics than they used to. And the U.S. is better, but we're still not as good. Yeah. Like as an as an example, um, people say, "Well, how are you going to compete?" Well, productivity. Let, let's be automated, and that'll make up for our higher wages. But in in, in China, productivity, labor productivity, has grown an average of six percent per year for the last 20 years and u.s productivity for the last 12 years has grown less than one percent per year hmm. so fine so finally it's it's far from the like some people say tax the robots they're going to take all our jobs i say no subsidize the robots so that we'll be competitive enough so we'll have jobs for people and it seems like automation, at least, you know, once we got past in the early 2000s, um, where automation was a big contributor as well as China, uh, it now creates jobs, um, at least in this. I mean, working with robotics is, is creating, it's, they might be different jobs, but it's creating jobs. Yeah, both, both creating jobs like the jobs of making the robot and maintaining the robot and such. But, but, but even more important than that, uh, we say that if, uh, that we will lose more jobs to automation in China mm -hmm. if we do not automate because we will not be competitive than we will to automation in the U.S. if we do automate. Because if we don't automate, more and more work will go offshore and we'll have people here with files filing pieces of metal or something, but 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 nobody will want them to do it because they're not competitive. So, so in the long run, yeah, yeah, it's a tough race. You got to run as hard as you can just to stay even, and faster than that if you want to win. 
And and I've no, and I've seen where the pace of us adding robotics versus the pace of South Korea, China, it was drastically lower. Is it still drastically lower? Or we close that gap? Yeah. The, yes, we're adding it at a slower pace than, than they are. And cumulatively, we have fewer robots per thousand workers than they do. And therefore, we're losing the race. And 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 yet, but we have the high wages and we have the, you know, the less skilled workforce. So we need automation to be competitive. We need to be like twice as automated as, as the Chinese to be competitive. And instead, we're less automated. Part of the problem is a lot of our factories were built 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, while the Chinese were largely out there scratching the field and putting rice in and, and growing crops. And, and so they have most of their factories built in the last 10 or 20 years, new factories, new equipment, automation, et cetera. And we're, we are too often still trying to get along with what was invested 30, 40 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So they just kind of hopped over us with that. Uh, yeah. Modernizing. So, so there's legislatively, there's obviously great examples that industrial policy works when you look at Germany, Japan, and that's, you know, even France, the reason our trade deficit is so strong because they protect uh, what they do make. Um, you know, do we, what, what do those policies look like in those countries? Well, I broke it down by the, by the major countries. Germany, absolutely skilled workforce. So they're always held up as the example of the apprentice programs. In Germany, about 60, 60% of high school kids go into an apprentice program at the age of 16 or 17. In the U.S., about 4% or 5% do. And most of those are into construction, very few into manufacturing. So Germany, skilled workforce, low currencies. They're able to keep a, their currency low because they're tied to the euro. And Greece, Italy, et cetera, the weaker Southern European countries drag down the value of the euro. If Germany were standalone, their currency would be 20, 30% higher if they still had the D-mark and they wouldn't be so competitive. So skilled workforce, currency, very strong engineering, you know, great great engineer training, great great quantities and quality of them. Investment, the the uh, Mittelstand, is, which is the like the job shops, family-owned job shops, consistently invest. Bad years, they still invest. They take a long-term view. That's, that's Germany, Japan, low, very low currency. They've always fought to keep their currency low. They'll, they'll be buying dollars to get their currency down relative to the dollar. Very good workforce, good engineering. China, a 25-year plan. You know, you read about their you know, plan for the next 25, 50 years. They targeted EVs, batteries, rare earths, pharma, chips, all the things that were going to be the, the future. That, and they became the almost sole supplier of these things. So we're totally dependent on them until we build our own. A discipline, the, uh, the people work hard. You know, they, they or their parents were hungry 20 years ago. I mean, real hungry, hungry. <laughs> and therefore, when you give them a job, they appreciate the job and they work, work, work hard to maintain that job. Uh, the Swiss are, are very exceptional. They skilled workforce, apprenticeship just like Germany, um, great in engineering, precision, very good international sales and marketing people. They speak four or five languages, and you know they're just just good at getting the thing done. So a lot, a lot of areas where the U.S. could learn from all of these. Yeah, yeah. And um, now this wasn't on there, but one thing you've you've pointed out before is. Um, 
Actually, we'll get that in the last question. So, um, yeah, so what are the favorable trends? Yeah, for, first I want to just define what we measure. We, we look at, uh, we call it reshoring, um, but we look at both reshoring and FDI, foreign direct investment. So GM brings something back from offshore, it's reshored. If Toyota brings a new product here, that's foreign direct investment, FDI. So we track that, we tack in-house, so work done in the big company and also outsource, <coughs> excuse me, outsource work. Um, the, uh, you know, so some of the things that have been important, favorable trend, the China unit labor cost, so the, the labor cost in dollars to make a typical product has gone up 400% in the last 20 years. So China was very competitive 20 years ago, like 50 cents an hour kind of competitive. And now they're $7 an hour. So they're even though their productivity went up, their costs have gone up to the point where even before the trade wars, even before COVID, work was coming out of China, but tending to go to Vietnam, Cambodia, India, somewhere. And the challenge now is for companies to uh, see that it makes, in many cases, the best sense to, to, to bring it back here. So the uh, in terms of the trend, can you let me pull up the next slide, see if this works. Here we go. See if the slide changes. Yeah. Okay. If you can see that, the I, I've plotted the trend in jobs announced coming back from reshoring at FDI. And uh, in 2010, when we started, 6,000 jobs were announced. And last year, 2022, about 350,000 just in the year. So we're up 60 times from where we were 12 years ago. So it's been you know, amazingly successful, much more so than even I was willing to uh, predict. Um, wow. As a result, glo global trade has plateaued. Global trade used to be growing continuously, and now it's uh, plateaued or falling off. Uh, companies are announcing plans to shorten supply chains and bring work back. So, uh, for example, the let's see, I got to follow my notes here again. <laughs> the uh, uh, next slide I wanted to show you. Tell me when that comes up. All right. right. Okay. So here's a. a CIPS, I think, uh, supply chain group did a big study, and they they compared. They asked companies uh, what what's happening to you, where you're going to source components and where you're going to do your own assembly. And and in both cases, uh, both sourcing and in-house manufacturing, they're they plan in the next three years to shift from making the significant majority uh, globally, you know, somewhere else to making it domestically, locally. So there's a significant trend from offshore to domestic, both for their own manufacturing and the sourcing of what they get. Uh, another interesting slide. I think this sort of encapsulates the whole thing. This was presented at, at the World Economic Forum, so Davos back, I think it must've been a year ago. And it says how companies have changed their perspective where as in the past, so you look at the green circle on the left, that's the before and the red's the after. So the before was companies trying very hard to save pennies on the plastic parts and the fittings and the everything that they're buying, okay? And now instead, the red circle, they're worried about protecting 
the, this, the availability of the parts so they can make their assembled product and sell it for $100,000 and make $20,000 or $30,000 in profit. So instead of worrying about the pennies on the components, instead they want to make sure they have the components so they can sell the big product and make the money. And to many of them, that now means sourcing the components here and assembling it here so you've got it here to sell it to your customers. We're here where most of your, your biggest market is. So this is this this one slide I think encapsulates the 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 view that companies are taking that that it makes sense to uh, to move the work back. It, it's not all companies, but it's certainly dramatically higher than in the past. Amazing, yeah, that, that, I see that. That uh, it's a good point too, from cheapest price to to the revenue impact overall. When you can't get it, who cares how cheap it was? If you, if you can't get it, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Uh, here's here's an interesting quote. This is a, a fellow from the, the the CEO of the Institute of International Finance. So, so that came up. And he says, concerning a, a Chinese move against Taiwan and the things that can happen, that every for every company is trying to figure out what, what it would look like and what they should do about it. So they're 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 we're, we're you know five five years ago if, if someone talked about China they say oh go away everything's great you're saving tons of money now they're saying that's too risky I've got to do something about it that that's an important quote here's a, a related one I I pulled this up just about a week ago this is a a senior VP of supply chain at Stellantis which is what uh, Chrysler is now called and he says uh, strategic sourcing people have to be figuring out how to go as local as they can so this, they make sure they're not dependent on what he called war-constrained or, or vulnerable uh, countries. And, and he's talking about China primarily, or Russia, but China is so much more important in the supply chain. So so can, so we see this overwhelmingly. The uh, I, I've got a chart that shows mentions of various topics at corporate earnings calls. So the quarterly calls where the companies reveal their earnings and the CEOs there and the hottest, the, the, the topic that increased the most in the last couple of quarters was reshoring. So overwhelmingly or significantly, these companies are moving towards reshoring. They're mentioning it in their corporate strategies and it's, it's become increasingly an important part of their uh, culture and their behavior. And that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And if it's not uh, to the U.S., it's at, you know it's at least I guess going to our neighbors, Mexico or Canada, near shoring. Yeah. So here's something I, I wanted to show you. If you see the next slide, so remember I showed you that blue bar chart, which was the Chinese price as a percentage of the U.S. price. So here I've I've gone a little deeper, and the blue line is that same data, but it's smoothed out into so it's a curve instead of bars. Uh, and but still the peak you can see is around 70 percent china 70 percent of the us mm -hmm. and the red is total cost of ownership so it's the the price plus duty freight packaging carrying cost of inventory all these all these factors that companies have typically ignored and now that you can see the short curve shifts over and the peak is around 85 percent and then when you add in the section 301 tariff so maybe half of what we import from china the subject to a 25% tariff. And so you throw, in case this case, I just put in a 15%. And you can see now the peak is around 100%. 
So what, what's really important here is looking at the numbers down here. So to the right of the 100 is the area where the U.S. is more competitive than China. And, if, and based on price, it's 8%. Based on total cost, 32%. And if there's a 15% Trump tariff, then 46%. So just by getting the companies to do the math correctly like this, the 20, 30% of what they're now importing will come back. But we have to have the workforce build the capacity you know, to make it happen or there's nobody here to make it. Yeah, that's that's a common complaint I hear from shops is workers for sure. Need the workers. But but part of that, one reason the, that the workers are not in manufacturing, the one reason they chose to go to work for the government or to do something else <clears throat> is that they believe that the manufacturing was all going away because it was all going away. So for 40, 50 years, the shops were closing, the big factories were closing, their uncle lost a job at the shop and couldn't get another job. And, and and therefore, no surprise, they didn't want to go into manufacturing. But to the extent that they listen to your program, to the extent that they read what's happening, that they observe that manufacturing is coming back, it'll be easier to attract the smart, assertive kids into manufacturing, mm -hmm. as was the case 40, 50 years ago. Yep. Yeah. No, I, especially, I think, I mean, I, I make little Tesla parts with 3d printers and additive manufacturing is really cool. And the, you know, when you're working with computers, the, the generations even behind me, I feel like they can get excited about that. So this, this, uh, the dad, the understanding of this TCO, a company outside Chicago, Mori Corp, which makes printed circuit boards, they populate them, you know, putting all the semiconductors and so on on the board. And they came to me about six years ago and they said, Harry, we're going to lose a big order. Can you help us? And I helped them do the analysis and okay. they took it to their customer and showed the customer that even though Mori's price was higher than the Chinese competitor, the total cost for Mori was lower. And they sent me a letter saying that was the key to winning a 60, that's six zero million dollar order. So anybody who's out there listening, if you're fighting against imports, if you've got customers that are buying from imports and not giving you a chance to compete, use the TCO estimator free on our website to convince those big companies that your offer is better than what they're getting from offshore. Reshorenow.org. <laughs> that's the place to find it. That's right. Yeah, that's a great point, though. If they you take everything into consideration, it starts to not make so much sense. Yeah. All right. Well, and so is that what we just went into? What should companies do? I think we talked about that pretty well. The uh, you use the total cost. We show it makes sense. Everything doesn't make sense to come back. Bring bring back what you can. For the big companies, I'd say make sure you've got some of it, enough of it back here, enough of the molding, enough of the machining, enough of the you know, wire harness, what have you, enough of everything back here. So that if something goes wrong over there, you've got somebody to go to and say, hey, I brought you back work in 2023 and now it's 2024 and everything's going to hell. Make some more parts for me because I need you. Whereas if, if you come in out of nowhere and you've never given that small company ever any business in the past, why should he help you instead of the 10,000 other companies that are calling him? So buy, buy you, you again, think of it as insurance to buy some domestic capacity. 
I think those are those are important for for uh, retailers um, use total costs because they're they're too they're also buying largely on price instead of looking at all the relevant costs and retails you know, interesting number the annual loss due to stocking out meaning I don't have the product when someone comes in to buy it or overstocking meaning I've got them left at the end of the year and I have to almost throw them away that annual cost in the US is about 250 billion dollars mm-hmm. 250 the b billion so they could companies could afford to pay moderately more for the product if they can get it here and order it here a month before they need it instead of ordering it there three to six months before they need it and then they can fit their supply to the actual demand and have enough to meet demand but not so much that they have to throw it away the other thing for retailers is to make it easy for the consumer to find the american product so i'll often be in a a store you know looking for something and i ask okay tell me about your made in usa stuff and they say you got to look look at each product turn over the label you know look for something made in the united states and i'm not going to do that it's, you know if you're going through a whole store because because only one percent of it or two percent of it's made here and so I, I always recommend to retailers they should have a big sign Ask, ask us about the Made in USA product and a big flag on it, and mm-hmm. then and and then a handout that says, you know, you, you want sweaters? It's aisle three, you know, shelf four, kind of thing. And then and then they see everybody's asking for that, then they'll go out and get more American products because people are asking for it. And then the manufacturers will make more American products. I mean, just like you're doing in your work. And they, and so make if you make it easy, they'll come. If you don't make it easy. They'll say, I don't have 10 hours to go through five stores to, to look for a Made in America product. I'll just buy whatever I can find. Yeah, that's Don's goal with MadeInUSA.com is the other sites that have tried. Of course, there's dozens and hundreds of American-made websites uh, that have products. But he wants you to be able to find almost everything, almost like an Amazon um, You know, that's hundreds of thousands of products. So that's, uh, that's, that's one tool that will hopefully make it easier for consumers. No. for sure so so yeah let's um yeah the uh what should the government do yeah industrial policy real industrial policy not not this splotchy kind of thing that they're doing now which which i'm not against but there isn't enough money to pay to subsidize all the products because you have to get money from the left pocket to put in the right pocket and if you're trying to put it in both pockets there's no pockets left to get the money from so so you can't subsidize everything so, and and the reason you have to subsidize them so much is because our costs are so high. So get our costs down. Again, get the re- way to get the cost down is is have a, a dramatically bigger and better and better trained, skilled workforce, and get the dollar down. You do those two things, it'll work. Companies will be begging to put their work here. Um, that that's the right thing for companies. I I, I call it instead of. Like a lot of people say, the government shouldn't invest in specific industries. And I said, no, they should invest in or enable industry or manufacturing in general to be successful here. And if they do that, it'll work. The um, So it's, it's pretty straightforward, but they don't tend to do it because they're they like the notoriety. They like they, they like the handing out the hundreds of billions of dollars, and and they they're afraid 
that if we bring too much back, like if we get the dollar down, that the uh, the prices will go up, and they'll go up. If we if we brought enough back to balance the trade deficit, you know, the cost of living would go up four percent, maybe five percent, something like that. So I mean, over a couple of year, five year period, it wouldn't matter. And yet we we'd be self sufficient. Oh, if we, if we got into a war. Um, you know, we don't have the ability to make the steel, to make the aluminum, to make the bullets, to make the tanks. You know, it used to be we had enough factories of some kind <clears throat> that the government could get them to convert from what they were making to making something for the military. Like my father <clears throat> worked at Singer Song Machine. And they, during the war, he made bomb sites for the, for the bombers so to drop the bombs. And, and if we didn't have that factory there, there wouldn't have been anybody maybe to make those bomb sites, and that would have been tough on on winning the war. So, so the more general industrial capacity you have, the more uh, ability you have to respond when things get really tough. So, um, so it's been ten years uh, since. The book came out. I've got my signed copy right here, by the way, by Mr. Harry. <laughs> uh, I found a couple of them online. <laughs> so, um, so in that, your your section was called uh, referring to turning the trend of reshoring into a torrent. Uh, are mm-hmm. we getting closer to that? Or is it a trend? It seems to be a growing trend based on that uh, trend line you showed. Yeah. Where, where, where are we? Well, three hundred fifty thousand manufacturing jobs a year. I'm willing to call, call a torrent, but I, I'd settle for a solid stream. <laughs> yeah, know, that's a lot more than a trickle. People used to talk about it as a trickle, and it's dramatically more than that. Uh, but but it, it needs it needs like the uh, the workforce available because if you tried to increase manufacturing by 10% next year, we don't have that extra million workers. We've got a shortfall already of 800,000 workers or something like that. So uh, oh, it's half a million. I didn't know it got up to 800,000. It depends on the month and so on, but it's, it's, it's a huge number. So if we had a demand for an extra million and, yeah. and people didn't volunteer, well, we'd have a million and a half on un- unfilled jobs and we, w- we wouldn't be there. So it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's if we had the people, uh, we could bring back, you know, certainly another million. If we had, and there were good people, well-trained, and then if we had the dollar down, the, the rest of the four or five million. I wanted to show you this, this last chart. So this is something I picked up about a week ago. And it shows the balance of the production of goods and services. So the blue line is, is the services and the red line is the goods, so manufacturing. And you can see for the last about 40, 50 years, manufacturing has been declining. Services have been an increasing share of, of the economy. Everybody says we're in a service economy, we're not in a manufacturing economy. But if you look at the data, the for the last 12 years, the two lines are flat. So that trend of manufacturing declining relative to services has ended. And, and that's because, or largely because for the last 12 years, the rate of offshore and the rate of moving work out of the country has fallen dramatically. And the rate of reshoring or bring it back to the country has risen dramatically. And those two have balanced off. So we've had, you know, we're now flat. And the uh, so the objective now is via reshoring to pull the red line, started trending back up and, and get manufacturing to be a, a bigger percentage of the U.S. economy. 
Yeah. And it's, and it not just, you know, even though it shows services going up, you know, I mean, that may have been going up because manufacturing is going down. So it'll be interesting to see. You only have so many people. You can't do both. <laughs> An infinite amount of both. <laughs>